No fish have been harmed in the making of this podcast. Welcome aboard, everybody, as we get underway. Thank you for joining Talking Bass in PDX. This is the Bass and Warm Water Forum as we talk fishing in the Northwest. Hi, I'm Don Clark, and I'll be your host. On this episode of Talking Bass and PDX, I'll be talking with Bud Hartman, a longtime member of the Oregon Bass and Pan Fish Club. But before we talk to him, let me talk to you about Talking Bass and PDX, the podcast. Now, the podcast is all about fishing in the Northwest, and if you enjoy listening, help us continue to grow. We've been growing now for almost two years. Tell your friends about the podcast and where we can be found. We're on Spotify, Anchor FM, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and if they need to, we can be found on Google. Bring up your uh, your browser, go to google.com, type in Talking Bass and PDX, and we'll come right up. So wherever you listen to us, it's great that everyone has joined us. I appreciate all the listens that we get and all the great comments. Well, the summer of 2021 can only be described as over-the-top hot. I've never lived in the Northwest with this many hot days. Many of the folks that I know are catching a lot of bass, even with the warm weather, but be careful out there. Make sure that you're keeping covered up, using lots of sunscreen, and just being safe in and around the water. Now, of course, I look at social media like a lot of folks do, and I have found some great-looking bass. One of the folks that I follow is Cameron Harris, and he has been pulling in some great bass down around the Salem area. Check out Cameron on episode 41, and check him out on Facebook. He puts out some great pictures of bass that he's been pulling out. Also, I received some great-looking smallmouth bass pictures from Bob Judkins. And Bob fishes a lot up the Columbia River. And you can check him out on several episodes on Talking Bass and PDX. I believe the latest one might have been episode 28, but he is on there several times. Well, on to this particular episode, I do have Bud Hartman. Now, many of you may know that Bud has been angling here in the Northwest for more than 60 years. He's caught a lot of different kinds of fish, and he is a really, really good angler. He also knows tackle very, very well. By doing the podcast, I've had several goals, and one of them is talking to anglers. One of them is talking to anglers to help us spread the knowledge and document anglers' stories. On this episode, I'm talking stories. Bud's been around a long time, and he has fished a lot, and he's got some really good favorite stories. And I asked him the other day, would he mind sitting down with me and going over a few of those stories? And he said, sure, he'd love to. We spent several hours talking, but I will give you the best half hour of Bud's favorite stories. And we cover a lot of ground, so... Uh, you're going to want to listen. You may need to back up the recording a time or two to get, catch all of it because we're moving right along. Let's get to Bud and his favorite stories. 
Well, Bud, uh, welcome to the podcast today. And as we've been talking about uh, earlier is favorite stories. You kind of outlined several of them for me, but I'd like you to get started with your award-winning story first. So I'll turn it over to you and let you go. Well, Don, you know, I've been fishing seriously for about 75 years. And I'm sure any of us who are real ardent anglers have our history of things we've done, places we've been, the things we've gone to, and so forth. And uh, and we we sometimes stick them in our memory bank, and we don't really care whether anybody ever hears them again or not. But some are interesting enough that they stay with us. Well, when you ask me about thinking back in time about some of my past experiences that may have been either humorous or somewhat unusual. One of the first ones that came to mind was a thing that happened way back in 1983. It didn't happen then, but the, but the thing leading up to this, what I'm telling you, happened in 83. The Portland, Oregonian newspaper had, when the journal died, had Bill Monroe and Tom McAllister as outdoor writers for the newspaper, for the now-combined newspaper. They decided one year to have a contest inviting readers to write in a story about some of their, one of their funny or humorous experiences or some fishing thing that people might find interesting. So after reading a few of them in the paper, I said to Marcia, I'm going to sit down and write one about an incident that happened to you and I way back when, when we were bass fishing at a lake over in Washington. So I wrote this story and I sent it to the Oregonian and lo and behold, it was printed in the Oregonian in April of 1983, and it was selected as one of their winners of their contest. And I was really pleased that, that Bill Monroe and Tom McAllister found this thing worth repeating. I called it the article that I wrote, Do Bass Climb Trees? They put it in the paper and called it The Feet Worth Another Day. And I'll try to, re without reading, I'll try to reiterate what happened. There was a there was a place on Lacamas Lake over in southwest Washington that I used to love, to, I still do love the bass fish, many years ago. There was a tree that grew in one part of that lake over there that I remember well. It's long since gone. It rotted finally and fell over. But there was a, it was a dead snag more than anything. And it obviously had been growing in this lake bottom before it became a lake way back when because it was now surrounded by water about two feet deep and I remember from past experiences of all the trips I made over there that every time I'd go by that knowing that largemouth bass like to hang around cover so to speak a piece piece of structure every time I'd go by there I'd make a cast at that tree knowing after a while that I'd either get a strike or I'd catch a fish and it happened enough times that I was pretty confident this particular day, I had my wife at the oars of a boat that we had rented. Got to remember, this was in the days before bow mount electric motors for fancy bass boats with swivel seats and all the other good things we have today anyway. This was just a plain, simple rowboat with a little five-horse kicker on the back. So I taught my wife how to row the boat to get into position so I could get prime casting distance from objects or wherever I wanted to make a cast. He said, anyway, I told her we had mediocre fishing for a while, and we get up there to this area of the lake, and I said, oh, 
we're close enough to my bass tree. Let's go over to that tree and see if I can scare something up over there. And she knew the history of the tree because she had been with me before and seen me catch fish there. So we get over and get in perfect prime condition and I make what I thought was a perfect cast toward this tree. My, uh, my lineage was good, but my elevation was off and I cast a little bit too far and the plug hit the tree. And instead of bouncing off and falling back in the water, it landed about 18 inches or more above the surface of the water. And it would happen to be a creek chub. If you, if any of your listeners or pod reader listeners are bass fishermen, they'll know what a creek chub darter was. I had a yellow perch creek chub darter on surface plug. And anyway, when it hit the tree, the back treble hook on this plug stuck in the bark in that tree. Now here it is hanging about 18 inches above the water, but the front treble hook is still loose and the line tie is at the front of the plug. So Marcia says to me, I give it a couple of twitches and Marcia said, I'll row over and you can get it off. I said, no, wait a minute. There might be something down there. I don't want to spook it. Let me jerk just a little bit more. Maybe I get it loose. So I started twitching with the rods in. Well, the plug is rising and falling and slapping against the side of the tree, making a little thunking noise, thumping noise. While we're watching this happen, all happened in a matter of seconds, if you will, all of a sudden the water erupted and out of the water came a largemouth bass up the side of that tree, vertical jumping, grabbed the hole of that plug, got stuck on that front treble hook, never made it back to the water. So I don't know who was more surprised, me or the bass, because all of a sudden I'm standing there looking and this bass is hanging on a plug, stuck on the side of a tree, flopping like wild, trying to get off of there to get back in the lake where he belonged, and he couldn't get loose. So I said to Marcia, okay, now it's time. You can row over to the trunk, to the trunk of the tray. We'll get my plug back. Well, when we got over there, I, I gently removed the bass and the plug from the tree, took the hook out of the bass, put it down gently in the water, and I said to my wife, if any fish ever deserve to be turned loose, that one sure does. Yeah. Well, what a story. And, and uh, so if... Um... So I was looking at your article. You've got a copy of it there. And, uh, yeah, they published it back in uh, 1983. Yes. And you got a few awards for it. Did you, you got some prizes and things that Yeah, nature? they gave they gave me a couple of books, fishing books, uh, hard-covered ones. They're in my library upstairs. Tom McAllister was a quite ardent reader. And uh, even got some autographed ones from him. And, uh, yeah, they sent, me, they sent me some stuff and a tape and a videotape. At that time, it was VHSs. You know, we didn't have video discs back then, VH, VHS tapes about fishing and fishing techniques and whatnot. Those were kind of the awards. It was just a fun kind of a thing. But they did publish it in the Oregonian. And as you said, I'm sitting here looking at a copy. I've got my scrapbook upstairs. Well, that, I mean, that's a that's a neat story. And I uh, I really appreciate you, you sharing that with us. Now, just a few minutes before we started uh, recording, you were showing me a photo album. And uh, you had a story that I found really intriguing about a small bass and a large bass that you caught at the same time. So tell us well, that one. I didn't really, I caught them both at the same time, but the story is really that I caught a bass on a bass. My eldest son and I were fishing, bass fishing, and I'm going down the shoreline in this lake. And, and just with Polaroid glasses and overhanging trees and whatnot, I was throwing crankbaits. I happened to be throwing a Burke's Little Big Dig, if anybody remembers what those are. It's a floating diving plug. But I see the shadow of a bass over in the shallows underneath this tree. And 
I do a double take, and I said to my son in the back of the bus, I said, look at, didn't want to spook, I said, look at that fish, you know, it's a nice big bass. And you could see him, just barely under the surface. And I said, I'm going to real gently flip this plug over there and see if I can get his attention. Maybe he'll hit it. So I flipped my plug toward this big bass. He turned. As soon as it hit the water, I didn't try to move it or anything. I just let it hit and float. He turned and he looked at it. And I started to give it a twitch or two to get his attention, see if he would open his mouth and strike it. And out of nowhere, out of the depths, come another little bass, come up out of sight unseen, grabbed my frickin' plug and immediately dove back down again. And I said, oh, crap. And Eric, Eric says, what, what happened? And I said, this little guy took the damn thing away from the big fish. He says, well, just lower it. He knew better than me. He said, don't jerk it in the boat because the little one, the big one was still sitting there looking around. He says, lower your rod tip and maybe he'll follow it down. Which So I stuck my rod actually in the water, still had that little bass on and I saw the big one just kind of start sinking slowly, went out of sight. And I said, oh, darn it. And while I'm standing there getting ready to pull my rod back up, I feel the rod tip go, you know, like, you know, you got a bite. And I pulled up on it, set the hook, and out from under the boat come this big bass. He's got my little bass in his mouth broadside. And the plug is loose enough in the little bass's mouth that one of the hooks is stuck in the big bass's lip. And the other one is still stuck in the little bass broadside in the big bass's mouth. And I'm fighting him around the boat. And to make a long story short, we ended up landing both of them. And I was telling you earlier that I've been fishing for, I said earlier too, 75 years. And a lot of bass fishing. I have caught thousands of them over the years. I have never, ever caught a seven-pound bass. Never. And my wife has always said to me, if you ever get one, bud, because I'm almost 85 years old now, you ever get one, I'm going to pay to have it mounted for you. To this day, I never have. So I had that fish weighed officially. I took it to a state-inspected scale, and it weighed 6 pounds, 15 ounces. I was one ounce shy of getting my 7-pound target, but I ended up catching both of those fish, and it was a bass on a bass. Wow, I mean, it's a, it's an incredible story, and I've seen pictures of the two fish, so yeah. uh, it... Uh, it definitely exists, and boy, that uh, that one that was almost eight pounds is just a magnificent-looking oh, yeah. yeah. fish. But, uh, well, you've still got time to keep trying, you know. Oh, yeah. You, you, they're no, out I'm, there. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not in a wheelchair quite yet. <laughs> you know, I might be walking slower than I did 40 years ago, but I'm still bass fishing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, there was one other story. Uh, this one goes off topic for just a minute, but uh, what's the biggest walleye you've caught? I think you've seen it. I have it hanging upstairs. 15 pounds, 3 ounces. Oh. It weighed, It was 34 inches long. And you know, and, and, and this is not a humorous story, but and it sounds like bragging, and I don't intend it to be, and maybe I've told you and your, your listeners before. When I started walleye fishing here, probably in the early 80s, we learned a lot about walleye fishing, and we started finding more and more of them. And I've done some walleye seminars and clinics and whatnot for various retail establishments over the years and for various manufacturers because, as you know, I was in this fishing tackle sales business. So I, I did a lot of promo kind of stuff. One year, I couldn't tell you what year it was. It was back in probably mid to late 80s. Fishing here in the Columbia River, below Bonneville Dam, mostly in the Government Island area, the mouth of the Sandy River and down, 
my wife and I probably caught more walleyes over eight pounds than most guys catch in the Midwest where these fish come from originally that we'll ever see in their lifetime. I mean, we caught Don so many fish over eight pounds, you wouldn't believe it. And fortunately, we made gentlemen's agreements with a lot of them. Once in a while, we'd keep a smaller fish to eat or chew them, but we turned them bigger ones loose. We knew they were the brood stock. And the day that I caught this particular fish, we had already turned loose two that I know were at least 10 pounds. I didn't weigh them, but they were, they were nice walleyes. I get this fish hooked. It was in shallow water. As soon as I set the hook, I could tell it was heavy. And I said to Marcia, and our youngest son was with me that day, my youngest son, Scott. I said, I think I got Moby walleye on. And he says, quit fooling around, Dad. Get that thing in a boat so Mom and I can get back to fishing. And this fish is he's dogging me all around. And they couldn't see him deep down underwater. And anyway, I'm fighting and fighting this fish. And, he's, and they, they reeled theirs up. They had to stop, of course. Come on, quit fooling around. And I said, well, okay, get the net ready. I'm going to pump him up. And I pumped him up, and I got the first look at him. And I looked over the side of the boat, and I saw this walleye. And I said to my son, grab the net, and if you knock this one off, I'm going to knock you overboard. And he said, I'll quit fooling around. Well, when I pulled up just enough that he could see it also, I thought he was going to fall overboard. Marcia had to grab him by the shoulders. Oh, my God, look at it. Well, here was this fish, and we, it wouldn't fit quite in the net but about two-thirds of him dead, and we managed to get him in the boat. I said, we're not throwing this one back. It's over 10, but we ain't throwing it back. So we did keep that fish. We took it to Fred Meyer when I got home and actually had it weighed and had the guy at the meat department sign a voucher with me about the weight of the fish for my club purposes. And then I took it to Rick Leach down in Park Rose, and I said, Rick, I want a skin mount. Since I've killed the fish anyway, I don't want a plastic reproduction. I want my fish actually mounted. Can you do that? And he said, yeah, it costs a little more, but I can do that. Took almost a year to get it done, and you've seen my fish. It was 34 inches long, and it weighed 15 pounds, 3 ounces. Most beautiful walleye. Oh, that's it's a, it's a pretty walleye. Yeah, it's but, really nice. Now, before you caught that walleye, though, you had caught another one that's, that's uh, a little smaller. But 11, had... 11 pounds, 12 ounces, and it was mounted by our former treasurer from the club, who was a do-it-yourselfer. He was a carpet salesman. He sold rugs. Can you imagine? Pat Harris. I did not know yeah, that he had, part a car- of the he had a carpet store over Lake Oswego somewhere. Mm-hmm. But he, was, he wanted to learn. So he, I don't know if he looked on TV or what, but he, he learned how to do taxidermy things. So when I caught this fish and he heard about it, he said, hey, bud, let me experiment with it, see if I can mount that fish for you. It was 11 pounds, 12 ounces, which was a nice one, but nowhere near 15 pound plus. Now, the, the, uh, the, the fish that's 11 pounds... Uh, has been donated to Oregon Bass and Panfish Club, and you will see that that mount at many of the uh, right places that we go, such as the uh, outdoor show. I right. believe they've had it at some of the seminars that they give that type of thing. So that one does. Uh, does hey, it's, it's got a lot of miles on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but your your fifteen pound plus fish is so beautiful up there. Oh, yeah, and I, I just couldn't resist grabbing that story as we're <laughs> as we're just talking about good fishing stories. And one of the things that I, I probably will mention this in the open, but we're talking about fishing across the entire United States because you're from Maryland originally. Right. Yes. Now you've lived out in Oregon for for many many years, but uh, uh, you've got a, a funny story about crop about carp that you were telling me earlier. Yeah. When 
<laughs> now, I want to warn everybody that this one is uh, early 60s, so it may not be politically correct. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, yeah, even no, before the early 60s, probably more like in the 50s, but that's okay. I was probably still in high school. Uh, when we talked about it, did I mention, it, or, or should I mention to your listeners, about the, the, the happenstance to get the car to go fishing? Oh, we should tell that part of the story. That's uh, that really adds to it. Me and me and my buddy Pinky, we were we were fishing buddies when we were teenagers. We did a lot of bass fishing, but we did a lot of other kind of fishing too for fun. But like most teenagers, we always wanted to have some pocket money, something to you know, pin money, so to speak. So we're looking. I set up pins in a bowling alley. I did various other kind of things to try to make it. it was before I got into the tackle business. Anyway. He says to me one day, his, he had an older brother who worked at a junkyard somewhere in Baltimore. And he says, hey, bud, let's buy a car. You want to share a car with me? And I said, where am I going to get money to buy a car? And he said, well, my brother says he's got one that came into the junkyard that he thinks he can get the engine running for us. And all the windows are still intact on it and so forth. And it was a 41 Ford. And I said, oh, that's pre-World War II. He says, yeah, but it's, you know, it's a car. We can go fishing. I said, uh, how much? He said, they let us have it for $15. <laughs> so I said, $7.50 a piece, we could buy a car. Huh? He said, yeah, so we bought it. We shared the same expenses. But even by 1950s standards, that's still pretty inexpensive for a oh, car. Oh, yeah, yeah, $15. So, so his brother got it running, and he brings this thing home, and he parks it in front of him, and it was rusty, and anyways, it was an old, old car. He says, we're going to paint it, make it look better. So we go to a Western Auto store, and we buy two little cans of black auto paint and a couple of 39-cent paintbrushes, and we bring it from his house down to my house and park it on Duncan Street, where I live, in front, so my dad could be the supervisor, and we're going to paint this car. So here we are standing out on on the residential street with row houses on both sides, and we're painting this car with these little brushes, Black. Over, we didn't clean it. Well, we did wash it and let it dry. Then we painted, let the rust, we didn't care. We painted over it. So we painted this car black. My dad laughed like anything because when it dried, it had brush strokes in it, of course. It, it was a mess. But it drove. It did run. So we're going we're gonna to use this to be our fishing car. To get some more money, to get some pin money, we wonder what could we do to get some money now besides set up pins in a bowling alley? And we knew that should I use that word that I used before about this particular ethnic part of Baltimore? Since it's pretty common in most cities, they have. Well, I, I think we have we, to. We had we had a little we had a little where well, there was there were German neighborhoods and Chinese neighborhoods and Lithuanian and so on and so on. Well, there was a Jewish neighborhood in Baltimore, and very commonly known back there, Lombard Street. And this street ran for a number of blocks, and it was lined on both sides by delicatessens and little bakeries and all kinds of Jewish haberdasheries and businesses, right? And it was known as, commonly known as Jewtown back there in the neighborhood. So we knew that those people eat gavelta fish, whatever that is. I don't know what it is, but they do something with some kind of fish. And Pinky says to me, we ought to go up there where the Falls River comes down into the harbor we could probably catch some carp over there, and we could take these carp over there on Lombard Street, and we could sell them to those people if they want to buy them. So 
long story, but we, we, we know how to do it. We've done it before. So I cook up cornmeal and with cinnamon and sugar in it, make dough balls and so on. We go to this place right in the heart of the city, sitting on the sidewalk where the water comes out of a tunnel going out into the, to the harbor, into the bay. It's full of carp in there. We start catching these carp. And we get a couple of chain stringers, the old chain stringers, and we hang two or three carp on each one, and we hang them out the windows of the car on each side with the windows rolled down, summertime, and hook the chain on the door handles that unopened the door so that we didn't have to hold them by hand. He's driving, and I'm yelling out my side. He's yelling out his side. Hey, fish for sale. So we go driving down this Lombard Street, and all these shopkeepers are coming out. Look, hey, you kids. Hey, wait, let me talk to you over here. Let me see that. So we'd start stopping. We were like hucksters going down the damn street. And these people started buying these carp from us. We didn't get a block and a half. We sold every one we had for a buck a piece. We didn't care about size. One dollar. One dollar you can have a carp. You want to make sure they came out of clean water. Oh, yeah, come from Lake Roland. Well, they didn't really come from Lake Roland. It was Lake Roland water, but that's about 12 miles north of here. By the time we got to the harbor, it was no longer Lake Roland water. But, oh, yeah, we guarantee it. Yeah, it was a sunny bottom. So anyway, we did that a couple of times every time we needed a few bucks. Well, one of those times we were up there fishing in the same place off of Baltimore Street, which is one block from Lombard Street, and we got a couple of carp, and Pinky gets one bite, he hooks one, he says, oh my God, look at this one. Believe it or not, he caught an albino carp. And it was not a koi that people have in fish ponds, you know, that sometimes grow up when they get out in the wild. This was a genuine carp. The fins were right. Everything was right about it. It was just a carp. And it had pink eyes. It was a genuine albino. And it was about six or seven pounds. So we put it on a stringer with the rest of them. And we go drive down Lombard Street through Jewtown. We didn't get a half a block. Hey, you guys, stop right there. And it started a bidding war. A bunch of these guys from these shops came out, these shop owners, and started arguing with each other about who was going to buy that white one. They wanted that white car. So anyway, we got a dollar apiece for all the car. We got $5 for that one. Went to the highest bidder. Well, back in those days, five bucks was, you know, people working for a dollar an hour. Yeah, so we got five bucks for that one. Wow. What a story. I mean, <laughs> I've... First of all, I've never really went fishing for carp. I mean, I've caught them, incidentally. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I did not realize that people even fished for them or oh. wanted them. But, but you left out of the story, and I want you to cover this part. But how did you make your bait? Oh. <laughs> I, I, my mom used to have a fit. Although it didn't really mess it up too much because I'd lay it on, on wax paper and make the dough ball. But I would put some water in a, in a little pot on the stove at home, and I'd, and I'd get boiling water. And I had yellow cornmeal. And I would start pouring dry yellow cornmeal in there and stirring it as it went, almost like making mush, if you will, okay? Like oatmeal or something, except I used cornmeal. Then I would add cinnamon and sugar to, I don't know what that did, but somebody told me to do that. And then somebody said, you could put some cotton in there, like, like, like absorbent cotton, and the fibers of the cotton will get to absorb the water and whatnot, and it'll make the dough ball stick. Well, I tried that once and it was a mess. I said, we don't need that. I'll just do it this way. So I put cinnamon and sugar and cornmeal and I boil it and I keep adding a little more uh, cornmeal to it till I got where it was so stiff I couldn't really stir it anymore. Then I take it off the burner, pour it out on a piece of wax paper and with my hands kind of mold it into a dough ball like, like mixing pie dough. 
And uh, then we would then put it in the refrigerator, let it get good and cold, wrap it up in the wax paper. So when we'd get to where we were going to go fishing, we would just take the bowl, the big ball with us, and you just take your fingers and you peel off a bunch, and about the size of an acorn, you just make a little thing out of it, stick a worm hook in it, and it would stay on there pretty good, enough that you could, and then fish, they ate it. Well, I've since learned that we could have used canned corn, because I've gone carp fishing since, even now, in recent years, and uh, used canned corn, and caught, caught carp with just yellow kernel corn out of the can, old kernel. As a matter of fact, this is a different part of this story, and it's not what you and I talked about, but Bill Monroe, from the, formerly from the Oregonian, he was contacted by ODFW, back when, and ODFW contacted me for a guy named Martin James, a guy who has a radio show, radio show on the British Broadcasting Corporation in England. And he comes to the States once in a while, and he's a handicapped fella, a wheelchair most of the time. He can walk, but he needs a wheelchair most of the time. And he has a radio show that's been on outdoor fishing kind of a thing. He wrote a lot of books. He's an author. He wanted to come over here to Oregon and try carp fishing. Well, they called me and they said, Bud, you're a bass fisherman. You know anything about carp? And I said, oh, my God. Well, yes and no. To make a long story short, got a hold of Bill Monroe as well from the Oregonian. And this guy came over. We agreed to meet. He stayed in a motel close here with his wife. We took him carp fishing a couple of times and caught some carp in all the places that we went. One of those places, Bill Monroe said, I'm going to write an article about Martin James in the Oregonian uh, with you taking him carp fishing. And I didn't bring a copy of that down because we had, it's upstairs. I've got it. But anyway, we went over to, to uh, North Plains on the west side of Oregon here, of the Portland area, and there's farm ponds over there in a cornfield. And this one farm pond is full of carp that Bill knew, the guy that owned the property owner had this thing. We're going to take Martin James over and do a radio program from there, carp fishing. Well, we did it, and while we did it, Martin James brought with him, since he had been here before, he did this for about three or four years in a row, and it was about the second or third time he had come back, he brought with him a rod that he gave to me, brand new, presented it to me, and carried it over here on the airplane, and said, but this is for you, and it's special, and blah, blah, blah. And it's a genuine tournament carp rod made in England, and it's 12 feet long, and it's and it's got fancy, I got it, fancy wrappings and whatnot on it, and it's what they use to fish for carp over in Europe, because that's virtually the only game fish they've got left over. Well, game fish, they call it a game fish. But this guy, was he was uh, happy to hear that, and that's where I learned to use, when he got here, and we took him. He said, you got a grocery store nearby? I said, yeah. He said, let's go buy some corn because I was going to make dough balls. You know, it's been a long time. So we went to Fred Meyer. We bought canned yellow corn, bought a whole bunch of them, and brought them here with can opener in my kitchen and dumped them in a bucket. And we took a bucket of corn fishing with us over to North Plains. And we just put about three or four kernels on a hook, and we caught the heck out of carp. That is interesting. Now, I have heard about folks using corn. I have not tried it. But I like the dough bowl, dough uh, story dough a whole lot, a lot better. Well, the dough balls work good, yeah, because them, them carp can get that, you know, in their mouth. Really, they can suck on that little yeah. hook, goes right in with it. So when you, when you sense that, because they don't really bite, you know, they don't bite like a fish bites. Right. You just kind of, there's little motions here, rod tip like this, and they're just sucking that thing in. So you wait about two or three or four of them little chicks, and then you jerk. 
Get them stuck in the lip. Yeah. Ah, so they've got to get that, uh, get, that dough ball in there. The dough ball's got to melt off of the hook. Yeah. 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 Wow, that's something else. Uh, the other story that you were telling me, which I was uh, intrigued about, this happened on the, on the East Coast, but I, I was really interested in it, is uh, stepping where no man has stepped before. Well, yeah, and I, I mentioned to you, Don, that, that, you know, those of us who spend time in the out-of-doors, sometimes we experience the feeling that we are somewhere where no one has ever been before, even though the world is full of people. Sometimes you step on a piece of land or a piece of terrain somewhere and you say, I'll bet you I'm the first person that ever walked this particular footstep right here. And sometimes we think that. Well, an incident happened to me a number of years ago in the state of Maine. I was fishing with people I worked with at a place called Tuckerman's, a tackle store in Baltimore, Maryland. Every year we would go spring landlocked salmon fishing up in the state of Maine. There were two lakes up there, Grand Lake and Big Lake. And the stream in between is called Grand Lake Stream. And there's a little town right there, a little burg, and they got a little resort and whatnot. But we didn't do that. We had an island camp that the guys had built years before that we stayed. I won't go into detail on it. But picture this, when the lakes were frozen in the wintertime, they were able to drive trucks out across the lake to get to an island that they leased from the government and cut the timber and whatnot, and they built log cabins out on this island so that when the spring thaw came, you had to use a boat to get to them. Well, there were no launching ramps or anything. We used canoes. So I did this like three years in a row. And one of those times, I had a guy that was in high school with me. It was the second or third year that I had gone up there. I invited him to go with us, with the guys, the, the adults, if you will, from this Tuckerman's tackle business, uh, to, to spend a week up there. We went landlocked salmon fishing. And one day after we had been up in the river fishing, fly fishing for these landlocked salmon, we were sitting in the middle of the afternoon at, uh, at the camp, at the, at the log cabin. It was a nice day. And Bob says to me, we're going to take a boat ride somewhere and go exploring. We're out in the middle of nowhere. We're about 10 miles south of the New Brunswick-Canada border. We're surrounded by nothing but fir trees and wilderness. And, and there was nothing. There was, there was no running water. There was no electricity. I mean, it, it, we're in the middle of nowhere. Anyway, he says, we're going to take, take a trip around and go look at something. I said, okay. So we go out and we get in the canoe. We've got a five-horse Johnson kicker on the back. And I'm running the motor. So we get in the canoe and we, we leave the pull-up spot there at the cabin, go around this island. Now I'm, I'm in the lake and I'm looking at the shoreline of the main lake itself. And I go over toward the shoreline and go down the shoreline and I see what looks like the mouth of a stream coming in like a river. I pull over there real slow and I said to Bob, the guy that's with me, I said, Bob, I wonder how far we can go up that little river he says, I don't know, let's go take a look, see what's up there. Because there were birds and deer and there were moose up there. It was everything, all kind of wildlife. So I go into the mouth of this little river. It's, it's got a little bit of flowing water, a little bit of current. Not bad, my five-horse kicker could go. And I'm winding my way up in this stream. And I finally get up to where it's shallow enough that I just can't go any farther. And we're inside this river. And I'm just looking around me and wondering about the, the nature itself. And I'm thinking, like I just said earlier, how many people have ever been here before, if anybody? Has any Native American Indian ever stepped on the ground up here where I happen to be right at this moment, at this point in time? And I thought, no, 
This is too remote, too too far out of anybody's imagination that anybody would have ever been here before. So I stick the nose of the canoe up on the bank, shut the motor off, and I step out of the canoe to go stand on the land to, to, to admire what I'm at. And I stepped on something, and I thought, what the hell? And I looked, and it was a Lucky Strike cigarette pack. And I put my foot right on it, and I thought, I'll be damned. Some yahoo had been up here and threw a frickin' piece of litter on the ground where I'm stepping where nobody has ever been before. I couldn't believe it. I'll never forget that. I thought, well, you're going to find people everywhere, I guess. Yeah. Well, and I, and I wrapped it up with that story that we'd been talking about because, you know, it was so intriguing when we were talking about, you know, is there a place in this yeah. world that someone has never stepped before? There probably is. Yeah. We, we may or may not never know. But, you know, when you're out in the wilderness and you're out enjoying, uh, especially here in the Northwest, oh, yeah. pick up after yourself. Yeah. You know, if you drop something, pick it up. Oh, yeah. Especially fishing tackle. You know, I, I, I notice this all the time. I'll go out, I'll be fishing, and I'll pick up somebody's line or I'll find an old piece that somebody has cut off. Yeah, pick that up and, and take it to the trash. Put it in your pocket. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Well, but it has been great sharing some stories from not only the Northwest, but clear across the United States. And I hope everybody enjoys this because I certainly did. And I, I would think that, that by sitting here and talking to you like this and, and bringing back some of these memories, and there's just a few, over that period of 75 years that I mentioned, there has been obviously many, many more and I'd have to, you know, retrace my thing to look. But I've showed you photos that I've got. I've got, I'm a big picture taker when it comes to fishing, because that's been my whole life, has been angling. I have thousands of pictures. I have books full of things that have happened or things that we've done. Most of them good stuff, not humorous, not funny, but there have been incidents along the way that maybe by me telling you some of these things to your podcast listeners, it will trigger some of them to remember some of the incidents that they may have experienced and uh, relate them to some of their friends and fishing buddies or neighbors, relatives, whatever, because it really is fun to sit down and talk about old times, so to speak, old times. Yeah, yeah it, it's great. And by the way, I, I wanted to mention this at the end because, folks, if, if you want to come out and meet Bud and talk to him about some of the other stories that he's got, because I know he's got a lot more stories than what I shared with today, um, come to an Oregon Bass and Panfish Club meeting. Uh, you can look it up on the web, Oregon Bass and Panfish Club. Their meetings are listed on the website. And uh, come out, meet Bud, and uh, you don't need to be a member of the club to come to the meetings. So come along and, uh, and talk to him. We are, as Don said, cost nothing to come. We are a nonprofit organization. We're a 501c3. Not that we're looking for donations, however... It just means that our meetings have to be open to the public, so there's no admission fees, there's no requirement, you don't have to be a member, you can just come to, they're open to anybody and everybody, and if you're a fisherman or interested in fishing, our kind of fishing, we'd be happy to talk to you. Great, thanks Bud. Well, I'd like to thank Bud for stopping by and sharing some of his favorite stories with us. I think that they are great. I hope that all of you enjoyed the interview. And if you'd like to contact me with questions about fishing, about being on the show, send me an email, gonefishingpdx at gmail.com. 
and I will be happy to answer any emails that come in. I do get several every show. Well, I'd like to thank everyone. Until next time, this has been Don Clark, Talking Bass in PDX, and I'll see you on the Backcast. Thank you.